0: This is In Search of the Pluriverse. We are Sophie Creer and Eric Wong. Join us on our quest for a world in which many worlds fit. We were invited by Het Nieuwe Instituut to be the first curators of their Travelling Academy. You can follow us online at pluriverse.hetnieuweinstituut.nl So welcome Tom Morton at this rainy morning on AirAid. Looking out of the window, what do we see? <laughs> I, I
1: was just thinking this earlier.
0: So uh,
1: we see we see a big grey sky. We see a soft day. We see uh, the sea lapping up against the shore, and we see rocks and seaweed and grass and railings and. Um, it is a thing of this thing of perception of what you see in a landscape and uh, you can look out there and 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 you could say there's nothing there but in a way there's 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 everything there because um, you have nature and you have uh, humanity living among it and, and struggling to find that balance and you have you Know the, the geology of, of rocks that are 414 million years old, and you have humans that have lived in this landscape for maybe 11, 11,500 years. Um, so we're relatively recent visitors, and even the soil do you know that soil has only accumulated for uh, you know, 12,000 years or so since the last ice age which scoured the rocks clean and created that undulating wave-like landscape but the rocks themselves at one time you know, they flowed they were granite molten and, and flowed like the sea and it's interesting this part of um, Scotland because you are on this you know, they say the fringe of Europe and and, and the, the the unraveling of things but that this, this place is um part of that the one thing that's been continuous here is that dialogue between land and sea and you know humans came from the sea and live on the land and people here the sea is, is an integral part of uh human culture and the identity of place so so what we see here is is everything and even then that lapping in and out of the tide that's you know that's a reminder, isn't it, of our place in the cosmos? Every every day it comes in and it goes out, and that ties us to the moon and uh, to the other. To well, the if other
0: you shapes. talk if we talk about the sea, um, we tend to look at it as a sort of an anonymous mass of water mm. um, that's complicated to cross or that. That, would, that stays in between the continents. Yes. But you could also look at it as a great way to communicate or a great way to pass or a great way to travel. Yeah. So in the terms of land, this might be a fringe. Mm-hmm. But in the sense of a coast where the ocean meets the land, in the past it was quite a bustling area here.
1: So, so I appreciate we had this conversation yesterday um, the the perceptions may be different coming from the Netherlands to, to Scotland in and, and these relationships of land and water and I think uh, you know it's this thing of dualism of seeing it's, it's land or it's sea and actually the interesting thing is that uh, that confluence that coming together and, and what happens there because you know at, at the meeting of worlds you get more uh, physical diversity you get more ecological diversity and, and, it, um, and it then stimulates a more cultural um, diversity and 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 the permanence of change processes, uh, being both permanent and continually changing,
0: as a kind of a time. Would you have? Would there be a word for that? That sort of where the sea meets the land and that energy that comes from meet from that meeting the two. Is that coastal or? I I, I, I guess
1: it's I guess it's coastal and and. Yeah. It, and in a way, I mean, this landscape that you see here, it's, it's part of a chain that you can see right down the Western seaboard of Europe, this, uh, this meeting of, of a continent and, and, uh, and an ocean uh, and the conversation that goes on between those two and, and places like this, from, from a continental perspective, it's seen as on the edge of things, but from an edge perspective, it's seen at the heart of things. And that the continent is is a diminishing of that you know essential condition of land meeting water, which uh, you know people inland are 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 isolated from, if we can use that word. Um, and so it's interesting looking at you know the development of culture along the the Western Atlantic fringe and how um, there's really a chain of connection right all the way from Galicia through Brittany up through. Uh, Cornwall, Wales to Scotland and, and Orkney and, and beyond really, um, both in terms of uh, the population during the Mesolithic and the move up and then the uh, development of farming and settlement culture and indeed um, the spread of, of Christianity, you know, uh, because these places were were most of them were never conquered by the Romans and and that system of sort of patriarchal control, if you can mm. say that. Um, didn't establish here. and, and that um, that relationship between the land and the sea was a relationship of connection between people. You know you've got a much more abundant uh, resources here. You've got fresh water coming uh, from the land and you have sea the sea as you know an endless possibility of resources and connection. But then for the people that settled here, that that uh, development of sea craft, and the understanding of the ways of the sea as well as the ways of the land both brings you an abundance of natural resources to thrive as people but it also uh, stimulates your cognition and your manual skills and your understanding of place and two completely different landscapes because a sea landscape uh, is very different from from a a land landscape and you have to understand you, you can read the surface of the water but but that has a conversation with what lies beneath the water. And and seeing not just what's on the surface, but what lies beneath is an important aspect of of sea craft and the people that
0: dwell here. Because that's also a red thread in your work and your thinking, I guess, that you'd like to talk about things that are not visible or that are absent. And if we look at this landscape, we cannot deny the fact and we've been walking it we've been sailing past it that it occurs well it's it it feels like an empty landscape um but yesterday you you gave a bit of context from scottish history in why it is not as because you talk about abundance you talk about mm-hmm. potential you talk about these these coastal areas as sort of Almost electrifying uh, meeting of ocean and land. Still, there's lots of sheep and not that many people here at this moment. Eh, I'm saying it quite yes. raw. Um, can you give some context to to that present emptiness right now? So
1: yes, and it's and it's and it's interesting. You said you know it feels empty because um, I think. There is an emotional response to landscape and and the word empty is very uh loaded and and this term of of these these kinds of areas
0: oh. oops <laughs> we're in the middle of nowhere you know, and tom's phone pensions. rings yeah uh. Let's pick it up at um, the idea of emptiness, and yeah. that it's al- also very well, what What yeah. is empty? You need to define empty. Maybe you can pick it up. So and, so, and, and
1: emptiness, so there's two things there. The one, there's the, the issue of being isolated, and the other, the issue of being empty. And in part, there's a, there's a thing about perception in that um, isolated from what, and empty from what? Because you can say, uh, from a city's perspective, this looks isolated because it's a long way away from Berlin Paris and so on. Um, but from a, from, we only exist here and we only exist now. So you know, we are present here in Aired now and we are not isolated. You know, Berlin and Paris are isolated from us in the way that Berlin and Paris are isolated from that relationship uh, to the sea. So isolated is a relative term that talks more about our values and our need for connection. And those things are really important, but when we use a term like isolated, um, that's really what it tells us. It tells us about our values and our need for connection. And so if we think of this landscape and the term empty in a similar way. It also is partly to do with perception in the what you see as filling or fulfilling and that not being here, and therefore it is empty. And and you can see it this, and and yes, it's in comparison to Paris or Berlin, it's it's empty of that you know density of people and that density of a synthetic environment and the noise and the pollution. And you know maybe the culture and the activity and almost the timeless quality that happens in the uh, the city, but but in a way you can say that the city is empty. It's it's empty sometimes of of connection. It is very isolated people to people. Uh, you're you're empty. Uh, you're isolated for a connection to uh, nature. And yet here you can see the landscape is full of connection. A connection between the. Aquatic world and the terrestrial world, between um, uh, between with nature and with the cosmos. This is this is full of connection to these things, and you have a cultural connection running north south, and you have a connection across the Atlantic, uh, because things come across the sea from the Atlantic. So in a way, it's it's not empty. It is full of different things, and this thing of difference. It's a different world. But that doesn't mean it's empty and it's isolated. It exists in its own reality. The other side of emptiness is the um, the things that aren't here now, that were here in the past, and that you know is partly uh, to do with human culture and also the ecology, because it is a degraded landscape because of the way, uh, I guess, particularly the capitalist system has impacted here for the last two hundred years or so, which very generally speaking went from a system where land was held uh, in common or in uh, extended family structures social structures um, and people lived mostly within the natural resources that were in the area in a way that thrived and produced uh, quite a strong cultural identity um, and a closeness to nature and that changed uh, uh, mainly after 1745 in the Jackabout Rebellion, when um, two things came together, both a kind of a, a cultural oppression of the Indigenous culture and uh, a, a, really a militarization of the landscape um, because of the need to control people. And alongside that came what uh, a lot of agricultural improvements the privatisation of lands by landowners to the loss of commons and the taking into private ownership and the use of natural resources such as forests and um
0: who were these private owners
1: uh well they were i guess they were the hereditary chiefs essentially um of of, of places like this uh and then because the land and the resources became commoditized they were then bought by Wealthy industrialists and so on, and so the the ownership of the land, and um, became vested in people who didn't have a personal association with it because they didn't live here, and it became a plaything for them essentially. And and often these landscapes were either used to extract financial resources, and then it was depopulated by people because uh, sheep made more money than people, and so people were. Uh, taken in whole villages, sometimes burned out of their homes, and forcibly uh, made to forcibly emigrate to places uh, on the other side of the world, Australia and Canada and America, and really ripping away the indigenous population from the landscape that they inhabited, you know, in some cases for for ten thousand years, and and a destruction of culture and a relationship to place that goes alongside that, and a disempowering of the people but inhabit the landscape from the decisions that are made about that landscape. And and the agricultural practices are part of that, but also access to natural resources for construction, access to woodland, which became forestry, you know, managed for private profit rather than woodland, managed
0: for uh, local natural resources. Can you say, Tom, that we still live in the aftermath of the Industrial Revolution that sh- shook up all these connections between people and their
1: direct surroundings? I, I think so. I mean, there are things about a place like this which endure, you know, beyond the impact of humans. Um, and so that, that essence, there's still an underlying essence of place, which has, has, has not been uh, destroyed. And, and in a way, the Industrial Revolution didn't necessarily impact here so much directly. Um, but it was more agricultural improvements and the, well, the privatization it, yeah. of, poverty, of, of property. Yeah, a, a capitalist approach um, to you know extractive resources and humans being one of those uh, resources. So a lot of a lot of men would be uh, conscripted into the military, and and this thing of militarization is you know you can see these forts that are dotted around, uh, but also. Um, the men that were taken away to, to fight in the army and the empire and that whole uh process of you know colonizing the world and, and extracting resources these things are all interconnected um,
0: another uh, example or connection in this system is that currently there are a lot of deer on the Alamo, of they and they are a threat for some of the nature reserves here? Um. Yeah, so I think there's, there was an explosion
1: of the population of deer when uh, the Highlands and Islands of Scotland became dominated by uh, ownership for sporting estates where uh, the landowners wanted to come and uh, shoot deer and shoot grouse. So the landscape was managed for that. So a depopulation of people helps that but also uh, uh, taking away of, of trees and are managing a suppression of natural fauna which gives these animals cover because naturally they want to hide from predation and you see humans here as the predators. And so the predators designed the landscape ideal for predation and what that means is that there's now a, a, a superabundance of, uh, of deer which then uh, graze on, on the trees which are trying to regenerate and stop the natural ecology of an area uh, recovering, and but but the irony is that deer are a woodland species. Deer are designed to live in woodlands so that they can hide from predators. So, so it's just that the imba- man has created the situation of imbalance, and we now in a process by which we can restore that balance uh, in the favour of trees, but really in the favour of deer as well, so that the quality of their existence is more how it, how it was meant to be. They weren't meant to live in open moorland, you know, visible to everybody in the way that we are. And yet that it that becomes the image of the Highlands of the Scotlands through the the romantic uh, way it was portrayed in the 19th century of these vast open landscapes and, and very distant views and mountainsides. That's not its natural state of being. Its natural state of being is actually largely a wooded landscape and a populated landscape. And where we are today is a long way from that, but there are processes in train that will
0: lead to a recovery of
1: that sort of balance.
0: But what is then the reference to go back to, or to what's then the should we go back to a, wood, a rich wooden, so, like a forested so, mole, or should we cherish this sort of cultivated, man made, or man influenced landscape as well? so so we can't go back we only exist in the present don't we
1: in 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 terms of how we can take action we can only take action in the present but um i guess what what i've learned through my recent work is that um time is quite an important factor here and and in terms of you know escobar and 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 the pluriverse you can almost think of the past and the future as, as worlds in themselves, in that sense, that um, the, the past is a, is a place which has its own identity but has a relationship to the present and the future. And the more we can allow uh, the past to be the past and to understand that in all its dimensions, the more useful it will be in developing an understanding of our current situation and in helping inform our design of future worlds. and and I think often our ability to act more effectively today is impaired by um, a very poor perception of what the past actually was both in terms of the depth of time and and the reality, uh, the holistic reality of what the past represents uh, and and what we can learn from that and how it relates to our current situation. Um, But also I think the sort of corollary of that is we often think of the future, we often think of the future in a way too too much, in that we populate it with anxiety and, uh, and in a way, a feeling of lack of control. Uh, well, it's the perfect projection screen it, it, for it, all our it is, fears and, and desires. And it, and it kind of inhabits us with fear, and fear is a very poor basis for making design decisions. And so uh, in a way, you know, I've tried to reach a deeper understanding of the past and its relationship to the present in order to inform my design decisions about how I want to influence the future world. And and your question was, should we be going back? You can't go back, but what you can understand from, from studying the past is what are the fundamentals? What are the... Th- uh, because it's like the past isn't one thing. It's kind of, it's, it's a multi-dimensional thing in itself. And, and the, the past is, is a constant process of change as well. There are things which endure, but nothing stays the same. And the, this thing of, of endurance and uh, resilience as compared to the constant flow of, of change, that's the balance that we're always trying to seek, isn't it? Our, our, our two feet are standing on different things. And the constant change, and the and the um you know
0: the uh, uh,
1: the things that are resilient and unchanging.
0: Well, let's continue that talk about time, mm-hmm. and how time is part of your practice also, and how it influences what you do, um, through your work. So I will introduce you yes. as an architect, <laughs> as a maker to our audience, because we didn't do that yet. Well, I'll see if I recognize myself. <laughs> okay. Well, let's go for it. <coughs> So, Tom, you are the co-founder of ARC. It's a small architectural practice based in Fife in the east of Scotland. It's close to Edinburgh. Its nature-based work transcends the classic architectural practice because it includes diverse creative and learning activities such as repairing mud walls, communicating material physics and building festivals. And with these actions, ARC helps to cultivate practice-based knowledge and skills. And currently, and I think we're going to talk about that, um, and from that we can talk about your practice. Currently, you collaborate with Ghanaian uh, Filipino designer Mailing Loco for the Future by Design Cove Park residency to be presented at the COP26 climate conference to be held in Glasgow this coming November. And you... Um, contribute with an open landscape classroom. And it's an effort to co-design and co-program a space. I think for you, that's really important that the space is not just an object. Yes. It has a function or it brings, you know, it brings together people or... So the programming and the building goes hand in hand. And that um, is dedicated to knowledge exchange in particular. And I think that's also worth mentioning between young people around the impacts of climate change on water. It's an urgent issue in both Ghana and the UK at the moment. And I don't think only in Ghana and UK. I think it's everywhere. <laughs> yes, so I understand. Yes. So let's talk about that open mm. landscape classroom. Maybe you can... You took out a picture. Maybe you can take it out again and describe to our listeners what this pavilion... Can we talk... No, it's... A, you. You should find the words for it to describe it. Okay, let me find it. Um, so,
1: so these, uh, it, yeah, I mean, it was a fantastic uh, brief in a way to uh, look at space for learning um, in the context of the future of design uh, and the climate crisis and, and, and water. These are all very powerful things in their own right, and and so so bringing them together, you know, cooks up, you know, quite a perky recipe, um, I think. And so um, the premise for the project was that young designers now coming out of university or the start of their careers are going to spend the next thirty years to twenty fifty, uh, really being dominated by the dealing with the impacts of climate change, and they're going to need new approaches to design and new uh, professional practices, new use of materials and um, uh, uh, new ideas in, in order to have successful careers in design. And so we were really lifting the lid on that and looking ahead to the future and using this um, this project as, uh, an Escobar doesn't mention this somewhere, about as, as kind of an exploratory uh, a tangible exploration of those issues, and so we we um, we had a project that dealt with materials and space, but really the, the the aim of the project was was people's minds, both the students that we worked with, and the I guess the global audience about this: what is design, and how what is its contribution to creating a better future from where we are today,
0: and so. Um, because the world design is it needs it really needs work to sort of redefine it, yes, because yes. design is now very much linked to industrialization and mass production and consumerism, yes, but you know it means something else as well i think I think that's right, I mean. Why do you
1: become an architect? It's not to become rich and famous and have an easy life. It's because uh, you have a, a strong feeling of of the human urge for creativity and you think the world can be a better place. And And if that is the the ethic and the intent behind design, then we simply need to become better designers in order to design a better future. And so the question is, We need to recognise that at the moment a lot of design is rubbish and it is part of the problem, a large part of the problem, and it's embedded in other things like patriarchy and capitalism, which are also fundamental parts of the problem. And so being creative and being concerned about future worlds, designers should be well placed to take a leadership role and to co-create better futures. And that is really the fundamental view I have of, of why this project is is interesting important and how influencing young designers who you know have come through a very formal educational process which is very embedded in current processes um and are working often for companies whose purposes aren't necessarily aligned to to uh, you know a thriving future for all beings um that we need to bring in new ideas and 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 look at those things because construction is a is a very conservative industry it's not innovative uh and there's a lot of uh inertia in that system that is hard to change you can you can look um you, you you can look at you know transportation where there is a sort of systemic process to move to decarbonize that uh, and at some sort of a timescale towards that and, and, a, and a technological uh, approach. And you can look at energy and you can see a, a strategic process to decarbonise that. The third biggest uh, sector for emissions is, is construction. And, and you do not have a systemic process within construction to decarbonise. And that is, uh, that is because of the culture within construction which impedes, uh, I would say, uh, a more progressive approach uh, to change. And there's there's all sorts of reasons for that, but the fact that it's not changing is going to be a real problem and as, as it will become more and more apparent as a problem. You know, at the moment where we are 40% of CO2 emissions come from the built environment and 40% of uh, waste comes from construction, only uh, 8%... Of construction, um, people, people involved in construction are female, and so is that sort of gender imbalance is a kind of an indicator of a, uh, a, a patriarchal approach, and all of these things are uh, worked together to make construction actually a large part of the current problem. And and then who do you look for within the
0: construction to lead the change? It's, well, let's mm-hmm. talk about that. Um. By looking again at the construction that you designed together with Maylin, what is it made of? So it's um, starting… Maybe you
1: should describe it, because we didn't do that yet. Okay, so starting from the ground up, so we have a a site um, in Argyll, which is on the west coast of Scotland, and it's kind of, um, it's an arts residency. And there we found a site where there were four concrete strip foundations from a previous building and uh, we decided to use those because concrete is uh, 8% of global CO2 emissions and it's really, we need to stop using concrete and, that, and try and find ways of identifying and using those resources in, in a way to create um, better designs. So we took the, the constraint of these existing um, uh, concrete foundations and tried to see how we could use that as a resource and use our imagination to create uh, as different building buildings possible from that. So we've created a curvilinear grid shell structure made out of timber. And I think if we can look at concrete and steel as a say that again? A, corv- a, curvilinear,
0: a curvilinear grid okay.
1: shell, which is really like an egg, I suppose. Half half sitting on oh, the ground. It's a structure of bended... A construction of bent Beams. wood, yeah. yes, uh, which um, work together to form a lattice. So individually, they're very thin and very weak, but when they're joined together, and particularly when they're, they're set in a curve, they can achieve great strength. So what is the scale of this egg or this dome? So it is, um, it's about 12 metres long by eight metres wide by four metres high in the middle. Uh, and it's, it has part, partly has a, a timber roof covering and it has partly a timber uh, deck in the middle where we'll sit furniture made out of mycelium, uh, so also another bio-constructed material. And it was really looking to build as much fossil. It's fungi. It's It's fungi. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so we've constructed it with a minimal amount of metal and with no uh, cement and no plastic as really a, a, um, a discipline for the use of, of of synthetic resources and looking, you know, at the potential for natural resources to be developed uh, for future construction. And then the, the interesting thing is that um, with our cohort of students, I was very keen that we didn't just have architects there because one of the problems at the moment is that um, our design disciplines are very isolated. And uh, so we have architects and we have engineers, we have product designers. We have jewelers, we have filmmakers and uh, photographers. And uh, because part of the skills that that future designers need to do is to work with people that they aren't trained to work with, to have conversations that uh, use a different kind of language uh, and to co-create things with people that are different from them and bring different experiences. I think that's a core skill, really, that architects often uh, do not develop. Um, and, uh, And... The other aspect then was that we also had landscape designers. And really what we were doing was, if we're creating an outdoor space for learning, um, that means that the design of the space was also a design of a landscape as well as a a design of an architectural structure. And that really, when you look at these things, you can't really divorce a landscape from a structure or you shouldn't because the two, you're really creating one environment you're, and and this design of space and time and place is kind of the core of what what architecture should be about, whether it's landscape architecture or, or building uh, architecture. And so the structure we've created um, in a way that uh, the the natural ecology of the area is this Scottish rainforest, which we saw uh, yesterday. There are fragments of it remaining. Uh, this is a, a woodland of, of oak and. Hazel and and birch that has an abundance of bryophytes and ferns, and it's uh, it's a very rare uh, ecological habitat that we have, but it's uh, and it's largely been um, removed by uh, farming practices, and so we have this a landscape there that is really a post-farming landscape. Landscape is no longer uh, financially or, or environmentally sustainable, and so then. This thing of, of, so we know what the past was, um, but what do we, do we want to go back to that to the future? And of course, the rainforest takes a thousand years to develop. And the question then is, what is a 21st century rainforest and what does that mean of, in terms of humans in place? So what we've done with the grid shell is create a sheltering condition where those plants can uh, develop and thrive. And within the landscape there, there were pockets around the burns and the rivers and places deer couldn't get to where we were able to transplant ferns and other mosses and other plants uh, to sit with it between uh, the concrete uh, and under the grid shell and in a way the grid shell um, is is kind of providing forest-like conditions for those plants to develop in that it's providing shade and shelter uh, for the plants uh, and which can then spread out into the landscape and in providing those conditions for nature to thrive We've also created conditions for humans to thrive, and so you can almost see that structure we've created as a woodland clearing. You, you can go into the woods and see how the branches shelter you, and they give you some shelter, but they still allow light in. And when you go into that place, and we did this yesterday in the woods, you go in from this, you know, this open landscape which is almost scaleless, and you're exposed to the elements, and it's and it's, uh, you know, it's devoid of of. Uh, culture and ecology. And then you come into this woodland and it's and it's hugely biodiverse. And immediately, you know, you physically slow down because you're not striding across the landscape. And and the temperature changes, the uh the sounds change, the sounds become much closer. It's not distant noises, it's close ones. Your attention span becomes much smaller and you focus on smaller things and you start to have uh, a relationship to each individual plants, and, and
0: so then the uh, forest weapons. almost functions as a dwelling or a house. It,
1: so yes, and this concept of dwelling of how we live in place and and our being as humans, that is then is part of the thing we're doing. We're seeing how can we recreate, you know, learning from nature and learning from the past the conditions of uh, to live in the future world, and the architectural form then in a way uh, uh, echoes. the the dwellings of the the, um, Scotland's only indigenous ethnic minority, the Scottish traveller people, uh, who uh, sustain traditional practices of itinerant moving around uh, Scotland and living in um, uh, temporary dwellings made of bent hazel and uh, coverings, really uh, until very recently. And you can track that lifestyle back to the Mesolithic, when the first people lived here in these abundant woodlands and used the hazel uh, to form temporary dwellings. And and that living in place in a a kind of, in a restless, transient way um, and having that very close relationship to nature, but not just inhabiting, you know, a single building as a little product of architecture, but inhabiting a whole landscape. I think that is part of what we need to recover in going to in designing a future world that, that understands our past relationship to place, it's very place specific, but it's part of changing our being that can then address these more fundamental things about our relationship to nature and patriarchy and economy. It's, it's so we've, we've made a little timber thing, but all of these things past, present, so future, almost like a tribute world, to that
0: idea of dwelling, it's, it's versus yeah. Yeah. And, roaming. It's an exploration of the possible possible future world when i look at the structure though mm. it seems like an enormous amount of tension is building up <laughs> at least in in this bended structure uh-huh. yes yes isn't that a risk can it explode or ha- because sure. you're also <laughs> trying to find things out i guess it's not. Yeah, so an, an exploration,
1: you know, when when you have an exploration like getting on on a ferry, you never quite know where you will arrive or what the journey is, and that is part of the intent behind exploration, is is the the uncertainty you expect, and so yeah, we designed something, and and of course we were working to achieve the most within limited time and money and human resources, and and yet we wanted to do something that had meaningful, and and what was meaningful then was really. Um, the ideas behind it and the intent and trying to uh, give the students and communicate to the wider world um, the potential of the future of design and the intention that, that can be manifest through that so in a way the physical structure it's nice it's worked but uh, we did have this talk before we bent the first uh, bits of wood by which time my confidence that it was going to work had declined <laughs> to about 50 50. Um, how actually you know the important thing is how we define success And really, you know, as designers, we need to understand that what the world doesn't really need is more stuff, more buildings, more roads. And part of the skill of the designer is um, to know when not to make more stuff. And and through discussions, I see the role of the architect very much as um, a kind of mediator between people and place and how that manifests itself in, in space. Uh, and so often that conversation part of the skill we need is the skill to know when not to build or or how to uh, change and adapt things rather than making things which are very part of this ego-driven capital and also
0: to accept it as a process and not as a
1: manifestation of
0: power or skills
1: but the other thing that's important is that we're not going to achieve the change we need to without taking risks and the construction industry and professions are you know indoctrinated with not taking risks and yet we're not going to achieve the change we need to without taking risks so this this spirit of exploration and the willingness not to be able to calculate all, all our futures is important and still make the change um and, and this you know what if spirit and And so we had engineers there, and we tried, you know, we did some calculations, and we recently thought it would work, but uh, you know it was fifty fifty whether all the, the joints would break apart. And you know, happily they didn't. Um, but in a way, maybe the learning would have been more if if they had because then we would we would have adapted the structures to still create the space and the outcome. It, the shape would just have changed to because the wood didn't want to take that much tension. say that happened, and we couldn't achieve that shape we would have used our skills as designers to adapt in that moment the design yeah, within the limits different. of these yeah. you know, bits of dead yeah. trees to achieve this lit space. And maybe in that, there would actually have been more learning and there would have been learning about you know, both your skill as a designer to adapt to what natural resources want to do and their you know, technical limits, but also the skill of the designer in being able to work in the moment and, and that being part of creativity. And creativity is a fundamental thing that needs to be um, manifest in designers, but recognized in all, in all
0: people. And the, the programming of that space, well, mm-hmm. we talked about the space, and the programming as is, impo- as is as important as the space itself. Is that in place? What can we expect? I mean, what's gonna happen in the space? Is that also your responsibility?
1: Uh, it's not my responsibility or is it
0: do you see it as your so they're part of your job that's what I'm trying to say
1: the, the future if of that structure is uncertain I think it will it will last for a period of time we don't know quite how long it will last it will depend on a number of factors but in certainly over in the run-up to cop 26 it will be used as a, a forum for discussions and there are uh, there's, there's a schedule of, of events planned for that which will use that as a, as a tool to debate about the future of design and the impact. I and mean, what we haven't talked about is a bit of this north-south dialogue and what's happening in Ghana, but that's a very important uh, sort of triangulation of that, of that conversation and a globalization of the context as
0: well. Well, later this month, we're gonna talk with you mm. and Mei-Ling about um, this project as well, so that her voice is also being heard. Yes. In our Search of the Pluriverse podcast. So I think we need to end this talk. Um, and I want to go back to the here and the now, mm. looking outside again, still raining, it's still <laughs> still grey. And yesterday, I wanted to, to, mm. to, to give an image to you. I, You know, we were cleaning up a beach, a remote beach from plastic, which was quite an effort. It was quite um, an undertaking. And then all of a sudden you said... Um, Is there time for a swim? I want to swim. And before we know it, you were gone. And moments later, I saw your head pretty far out in pretty cold water, um, swimming and snorkeling. Yes. Yes. So let's bring reality back to the body, your body and the landscape and where the sea meets the land. How was that for you to swim there?
1: Uh, it, it was it was fantastic. It was a, it was a it was a beautiful spot, both you know above the water surface and below it. And I think that's what a snorkel helps you to to engage in. I don't know. I've always had been drawn to the sea. And I have to resist <laughs> going in, but but it was it was beautiful yesterday. you had the in a way, you know the the sand floor, which looks so nice from up above, is actually a bit of a desert down below because not much thrives there, and it's at the fringes and the rocky areas where you get more complexity and, and fish and so on. but the you also have kelp forests there, and just that uh, you know it, it, it's a very beautiful thing to see with the slanting lights and the different colors. And come the water through go, and the water it coming and going and then just you know being physically immersed in a different environment is uh, you know a stimulating thing and um, yeah I just love uh, swimming in the sea
0: and you saw a school of fish right? I so saw a
1: school of fish yes uh, different, different fish different kinds of uh, fish both the sand eels which are kind of you know these little fish which shimmer in front of you and you can never quite uh, get close to because they They shift as a a whole uh, school of fish Uh, and and larger fish, I think, uh, safe or so, maybe 10, 12 inches long. But but there was three or four hundred of those sheltering in one uh, particular area. And you just get a feel for it because the temperature changes quite a lot between the different parts and the currents and so on. Um, But yeah, it's kind of a, it's a place out of time, but you need to know when
0: to to stop because you can
1: feel how the different parts of your body are
0: cooling down. (laughs) Well, good anticipation anyway to bring your snorkel Mm. and your your goggles with you. So thank you, Tom, for Mm. this inspiring talk. Thank you. In Search of the Pluriverse is part of the Travelling Academy, an initiative of Het Nieuwe Institute in close partnership with the Consulate General in Istanbul and embassies in Germany, Morocco, Spain and the UK. The Travelling Academy brings together makers from these regions and the Netherlands to learn how formal and informal ways of knowing can support each other in tackling ecological, political and spatial issues.